Um, well, again, good morning, and uh, thank you for joining us this morning. And um, I want to start off by telling you a story, a true story, about a guy named Keith. And um, Keith was driving down a mountainside, a very heavily wooded mountainside. And um, he was in his truck, and I believe he even had a camper behind him. And as he was driving uh, down this uh, mountainside, everything going just fine, a um, very windy road, a, a vehicle came out of like a perpendicular road and T-boned him. And just like that, he was driving down the road, everything was going fine, and then just in a moment, he gets T-boned, and his truck flips, and he ends up upside down. I mean, this is like when you watch a movie, this is how like every wreck happens, but, uh, but this is like, you know, this actually happens. So he's upside down. <clears throat> I mean, you got like broken glass and like broken truck parts. His seatbelt, which just like moments ago was keeping him safe and secure inside his truck, is now keeping him stuck inside his truck. He's upside down. He can't unfasten his seatbelt. A fire starts, and then, uh, then he realizes that the propane tank has been punctured and that the fire is, once the fire reaches that, it's, it's just going to get worse. And I wonder how many of you right now can relate or at some point in your life, um, either right now you can relate or at some point you could relate on a spiritual level to what Keith was going through. In your walk with Christ, in your walk with God, everything was going really well. And then just something happens, and you got T-boned, and you find yourself upside down, stuck, fire, you're disoriented, and things are probably just going to get worse. Um, today, what, we're, what I want to introduce to you is this, this topic of, of something that, is, that, we, that we, as a, the big church, the capital C church, we don't, we don't emphasize this a lot. And I realize that today's sermon is going to be a different type of message uh, than we're used to. And it's, um, it's, it's titled, Always Be Ready. And it comes from this idea called apologetics. Now, to some of you, that might be the very first time you've ever heard that word, apologetics. Now, some of you might have heard it before. Uh, for anybody in the room that has been, any student in the room that has been my student before, you hear that word a lot. We talk about it very often in my classroom here at CCS. Uh, but today I want to give you an introduction to apologetics, to introduce you to what apologetics is. And I want to show you that believing in God is actually the most intellectual thing you can do. It is the smartest thing you can do. If you follow the evidence, you will arrive to a belief in God. That's what I'm hoping to show you today. And uh, we're going to go through a couple pieces of evidence. They're called arguments. Uh, but that just means there are a couple pieces of evidence. So if you have your notes, I know, I know they're way longer than normal. Uh, I just, I, I, that's just how um, I wanted to help, help you remember um, what we have for today. Uh, but if anything, please follow along with all the things that are on the screen. So having said all that, what is apologetics? You might be thinking, okay, so what is it? What is apologetics? Well, apologetics is simply defending Christianity with evidence. Apologetics is simply defending Christianity with evidence. I'm talking cold, hard facts. 
not fluffing stuff, not I'm trying to manipulate your emotions so that you come to a belief in Jesus. I'm talking about can we actually look at science, can we actually look at history, can we actually look at logic and facts and still come to a belief in God? That's what apologetics is. It comes, uh, or it's, uh, it's defending Christianity with evidence. Next question I want to uh, address before we actually get into the arguments is, is apologetics biblical? Because a lot of the times, whenever apologetics get brought up, sometimes you hear people who are like, well, we don't need apologetics. Jesus doesn't need defending. God doesn't need defending. Just, just you're either going to believe the Bible or you're not. You're either going to believe in Jesus or you're not. And uh, I believe apologetics is biblical for, for several reasons, for two of them, is that apologetics actually comes from the word apologia, which is, we, which is in the Bible from 1 Peter 3.15. We actually get the word apologetics from Scripture. Uh, 1 Peter 3.15 says this, always be prepared or ready, always be ready, depending on what version you're reading from, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Let me read that again. Always be prepared or ready to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. That word answer in that passage right there, um, in some versions, like if you have the English Standard Version, instead of the word answer, it uses the word defense. And that's the word apologia. Always be prepared to give a defense for the hope that you have. That word defense is apologia. Always be prepared to give a defense. So yes, I believe apologetics is biblical. And one more reason why I believe apologetics is biblical is because um, some of you might know this verse in, chap in Romans chapter 1, verse 20. It says, for ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky. Through everything God made, listen to that, through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power, and his divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. So listen to what that's saying. It's saying through everything God made, what's that? Just his creation. When you get out in, in God's just raw creation, you go for a walk in the woods, you go to the beach, you, you walk next to a, a, a creek, you just get out in God's raw creation, get out of Get out of bricks and sheetrock and drywall and actually get out in nature. And the Bible says that you will clearly see the invisible qualities of God. That's why many of us, even if we call ourselves indoorsy, when we are walking through the woods or when we do see a sunset, there's just this weird awe that comes over us. It's because you're seeing the evidence of God that he has given you. God has left us, just through nature, God has left us evidence of himself. So yes, I believe apologetics is important. And then how, or I believe it is biblical. And then, so next is how is, how is apologetics important? And I believe apologetics is important for three reasons. One is for any, for the non-believer. For anybody listening to my voice who maybe doesn't know if they believe in God or not. Or just, just straight up says, no, I do not believe Number one, I believe apologetics is important because it can show non-believers that there is evidence for God. A lot of time when it comes to non-believers, when it comes to atheists, they just simply believe that there is no evidence for God. 
It's one of their, it's like, it's just one of their slogans. They just say, I don't believe in God because there is no evidence for him, so why would I believe in him? They just, they just think there's no evidence. So one, one thing that apologetics does is it does show you, it introduces to you that yes, there is factual evidence for God's existence. Number two, it can help Christians be more confident in their faith. It can, be, it can help Christians be more confident in their faith. And then number three, it can help Christians be more confident in sharing their faith with others. A lot of the time, and I'm sure you, you might agree with me with this, I hear it a lot in the classroom, I hear it elsewhere, a lot of the time, if someone asks you, you know, why, why don't you share Jesus with other people, a lot of the time I hear, well, what if they ask me a question that I don't know the answer to, right? A lot of us can relate to that. What if they ask me a question that I just don't know? And um, apologetics is not going to give you every answer to every question you'll ever hear, but it can get you in the right direction. It can help you be more confident in sharing your faith with others. Um, so before we jump into the two arguments that we're going to cover today, I want to give you a real brief introduction to all five main arguments that are used to defend Christianity. And what I hope, my hope is that when I introduce these five arguments, if one of them like is super intriguing to you, please write it down. Or if you have the notes, they're all on there. Grab a copy as you leave because the, they're all on there. And if you're like, whoa, that one did sound very interesting to me. I want to look into that more. Go home, get on your phone, get on your computer, research it, look it up, check it out um, if, it, if it interests you. So number one, the number one argument is the cosmological argument. We're going to talk about that here in just a little bit, so I'm skipping for now. It's a scientific argument. Number two is another scientific argument. It's called the teleological argument. It deals with, um, it deals with the fact that this universe is so intelligently designed. It's so well designed that it demands a creator. The third argument is the moral argument. The moral argument basically claims that if you believe that there are some things that are right and there are some things that are wrong, okay, those are called morals, the moral argument basically claims if you believe there are, if there are some things that are right and if there are some things that are wrong, then that means, that demands that God must exist. The ontological argument is my students' favorite argument to hate because it is a psychological argument. It's a very mind-bendy argument. It, it takes place completely inside your brain. And basically, the ontological argument claims that the fact that we're able to think of God proves that he exists. And then lastly is the historical argument, and that's another argument that we're going to talk about today. So we'll skip over that for now. And I realize I'm using big, I'm using big fancy words um, like apologetics and cosmological. And one reason why is because I am tired of sometimes we water things down. We are smart people, and we can handle big words. If you can go to the coffee shop and order a frappuccino <laughs> or an espresso or, you know, a cappuccino, like, we, we can use, we can understand big words like apologetics or cosmological. And this next one is a deductive argument. I want you to understand that these two arguments that I'm going to introduce to you today are called deductive arguments. And what that means is simply, um, when, when they get thrown up on the screen here in just a second, you'll see three statements and um, you'll constantly, this morning, you'll constantly hear me say statement A, statement B, statement C. Again, I want you to know that believing in God is an intellectual thing. So we're going to use 
big fancy words and, and, and stuff like this. So deductive argument, you have statement A, statement B, and statement C. And the way deductive arguments work is if A is true and if B is true, then C must be true. If you don't like C, if you don't like C, then just prove A or B wrong. If you can prove A wrong or if you can prove B wrong, then C is automatically wrong. Okay, you'll get it as we go. So number one is the cosmological argument. Um, the cosmological argument, like I said, is a scientific argument for God's existence. Cosmological argument deals with cosmology, which is the study of the, of the origin of the universe. All right, Genesis chapter one type of stuff. It's the study of the beginning of the universe. And so the, uh, here's the cosmological argument. We have A, B, and C here. So A, everything that begins to exist has a cause. I hope to show you that that is a true statement. Everything that begins to exist has a cause. B, the universe began to exist. Again, I hope to show you that that is a true statement. Because if A is true, and if B is true, then C, therefore, the universe has a cause, must be true. Follow me? So if A is true, and if B is true, then C must be true. The universe has a cause. So let's go through. Let's go through A and B here. Is statement A true? Is, is it true that everything that begins to exist is caused to exist? Well, I believe that statement A is true because of what we can observe, observational evidence. Think about, just look in this room and pick out five things. The chair you're sitting in, this music stand, the pen you're holding, the paper you're holding, you. Every one of those things at one time did not exist, yet now they do. So how did all of those things go from not existing to existing? Something caused it. Something created it. The car you came to church in. All the, the watch, your phone, all of those things did not exist at one point, right? Yet now they do. So how do they go from not existing to existing? Something caused it to exist. Something created it. So I believe statement A is true. What about B? The universe began to exist. Now, we as Bible-believing Christians and any, any Bible-believing individual over the past several thousand years, we've always believed the universe had a beginning, right? Anybody who believes Scripture will tell you, oh yeah, for thousands of years we believed that the, the, the universe had a beginning. Genesis chapter 1 says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. What does that mean? It means that the heavens and the earth didn't exist and then God created them. So they did. So we've always believed. So there's biblical evidence that the universe began to exist, but are, is there any scientific evidence that the universe began to exist? Well, it's, interestingly enough, there hasn't been any scientific evidence that the universe began to exist until just about 100 years ago, which is really recent on, you know, a, a, big, time, a big time scale. It wasn't until about 100 years ago when, um, there's, you know, there were some people who believed it had a beginning. There were some people who believed the universe was just stagnant, that it was just eternal. Um, but it wasn't until a guy named Edwin Hubble, he had a, um, a fancy telescope that he looked through and he observed the stars and the planets and everything in the sky. And he, note, and he, he did his observations, he did some calculations, and he realized 
that the universe is expanding. It wasn't stagnant like Einstein wanted it to be. It wasn't collapsing, it was actually growing. And then discoveries after that in the past 100 years have just confirmed that over and over and over, that the universe right now, even right now, as we're right here, the universe is still expanding. And what's that mean? Well, it means if you hit the pause button, and then you hit the rewind button, you'll come back to a singular beginning point. It wasn't until just about 100 years ago that science finally caught up to what the Bible had been saying all the time, the whole time. The universe has a beginning. That is almost, that is almost um, completely agreed upon um, uh, uh, among scientists and stuff, that the universe had a beginning. So if A is true and if B is true, then C must be true. The universe has a cause. Now, when you finish an argument like this, you have to ask yourself, so what? So what does that mean? What's the big deal? you got to go through what are called the implications. And if you have your notes, you'll see that there's a little list there for you. Um, so what are the implications of this argument? Just, just thinking scientifically, just thinking logically, what can we conclude? Well, this universe is pretty big. So whatever caused the universe must be pretty powerful. If you look through a telescope or if you look through a microscope, you'll see that this universe is very complex. This universe is very complicated. So whatever caused the universe must be pretty smart. Follow me here. Because um, whatever caused the universe, atoms, if you know what atoms are, atoms make up everything. Atoms make up you. They make up the pen, the paper that you're holding. They make up the chair you're sitting on. They make up the car. Atoms make up everything, okay? Atoms began to exist at the beginning of the universe, which means the cause of the universe existed before atoms, which means the cause of the universe is not made up of atoms. It's atomless or non-physical or immaterial, or if you're going to use like a biblical word, you could use the word spirit, because it existed before atoms did. Also, um, time, time began at the beginning of the universe, so the cause of the universe must be timeless, must be outside of time. Space began at the beginning of the universe, so the, the cause of the universe must be spaceless. Nature, obviously, nature began at the beginning of the universe. So the cause of the universe must be beyond nature or supernatural. And, and because nature began at the beginning of the universe, because nature began at the beginning of the universe, the cause, the cause of the universe is not bound by our natural laws. And so the cause of the universe can be uncaused or eternal. Do you see how this argument, the cosmological argument, just using science brings you to a cause of the universe that sounds a lot like the God of the Bible? A powerful, smart, non-physical, timeless, spaceless, supernatural, eternal cause. That is what science will bring you to. 
Now, there are many religions out there that might be like, oh, that sounds good to me. You know, like, this, does this argument prove that the God of the Bible is the one true God? No, it does not. Does this argument prove that Jesus is the Son of God? No, it does not. But it brings you to the conclusion that a powerful, smart, um, non-physical, timeless, spaceless, supernatural, eternal cause is what started this universe. And so with the cosmological argument, you kind of get to the point where, okay, it sounds a lot like God, but there are other religions that have their God that also fits some of those descriptions. So how do we know it's the God of Christianity? How do I know it's Yahweh? How do I know Jesus is God? And that's what brings us to our final argument for today, our second argument for today, and that is the historical argument. The historical argument. Now, the historical argument deals exactly with what you would think it would deal with. It deals with historical eyewitness testimony. It deals with history. And now, before we get to the ABC of the historical argument, there are two facts that we need to to get straight first. These are two non-debatable historical facts. Number one, this is in your notes, number one, Jesus existed. Jesus Christ, born in Bethlehem, died under Pontius Pilate, was a real, true human being. That is a historical fact. If you believe that George Washington was a real person, then you can use that same evidence of why you believe George Washington was a real person. You can use that same kind of evidence to believe that Jesus was a real person. If you believe that Julius Caesar was a real person, you can use that same kind of evidence to believe that Jesus was a real person. Alexander the Great, any historical figure, If you believe that those people are real people, then you can use that exact same kind of evidence to believe that Jesus was a real person. Even if you you discount Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, even if you're like, I don't believe in those books, that's the Bible, the Bible's made up, I don't believe, give me something else. There are still 39 other books not written by Christians that were written in that same time that referenced the life of Christ in one way or another. You got guys like Josephus, not a Christian, a Jewish man who does not believe that Jesus is the Christ, yet he is a historian. Again, his name is Josephus. He was a historian, and he just wrote down history. And what did he write down? He writes down about Jesus. Born, he writes down about Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ was a historical person. You got a, name, you got a, you got a guy named Tacitus who was a Roman, not a Christian, and he writes about Jesus. Jesus Christ, and there's 39, there's 39 um, books that are outside of the Bible that reference the life of Christ in one way or another. Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ was a real, physical human being. Uh, the other, the second fact, before we get into the ABC of the historical argument, the second fact is that Jesus claimed to be God. Jesus claimed to be the Son of God. Jesus claimed to be God the Son, however you want to word that. Jesus claimed to be God. That is another historical fact. You see, that, you see it in those extra biblical books, those 39 non-biblical books. You see that reference there. Um, you see it in um, Mark 14, verses 61 through 62. Jesus claimed to be God several times, but here's just one very clear. Um, I encourage you to look it up uh, later. It's, again, it's Mark 14, verses 61 through 62. And uh, in that passage, Jesus is on trial in front of the Pharisees right before he dies. And um, they ask him, are you the Messiah, 
the son of the blessed one? And he answers a, with a two-word answer, I am. And if you read that passage, the, the religious leaders grab their robes, they rip them because they, they know, they know what Jesus just claimed. Jesus just said he is God. Now to our American 2,000 years later ears, we're like, what's the big deal? But when you realize what was going on there, they know Jesus just said, I am God. They rip their robes, and they say, what else do we need to hear? And they march them off to start the, uh, the crucifixion process. So fact number one is Jesus existed. Fact number two, Jesus claimed to be God. Those are historical facts. And so here we go into the ABC. And the, listen, if, if, if all this, your eyes have kind of just like glossed over because like this is just like doesn't interest you or whatever if there's one thing that you walk away from hearing this morning I pray it's this 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 argument that I'm about to tell you because this is something that is so easy to just log away in your brain when you're going through a rough time or if you have a family member or somebody who may be struggling with their faith you can you can use this to comfort them to help them here it is Jesus was either a liar lunatic or Lord. Jesus was either a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. If someone were to walk in here right now and say, I am God, there are three ways that we could take that person. One, you could say, you're a liar. You know you're not God. We could say, you're a liar. You're not God, and you know you're not God. That makes, that makes them a liar. Two, we could say, you're crazy. You're not God, but you think you are. Or three, we could say, you're telling the truth. And those are the exact same three options you have with Jesus. And everybody in this room, everybody at home, everybody listening to my voice has to come to one of those three conclusions. You cannot just simply say Jesus was a good teacher or that he was a good moral guy. You can say those things, but you can't stop there. You either have to conclude, he claimed to be God. So you have, to, you have to deal with that. You either have to say, he's lying, he's not God, he's crazy, or he's telling the truth. Everybody in this room, everybody listening to my voice has to make that decision. B, he was, Jesus was not a liar or a lunatic. I hope to prove that that is a true statement here in just a second. If A is true and if B is true, then C must be true, therefore Jesus is Lord. So the question remains, how do we know, how do we know that Jesus wasn't a liar or that he wasn't crazy? How do we know Jesus wasn't a liar or how do we know Jesus wasn't crazy? So let's go through those one by one. How can, how can we be so confident that Jesus wasn't a liar? And I'm telling you, the number one biggest piece of evidence is in front of you every single time you walk into this building because the number one biggest piece of evidence that Jesus was not a liar is that right there. It's the cross. The fact that Jesus claimed to be God and he got killed because of it, going through a Roman torture, a Roman flogging, and a Roman crucifixion, and never one time put his hands up and said, you know what, you got me. I'm lying. I'm, I'm not God. 
never once. I believe there's some story even like to, to kind of show you the contrast of this, like with water, the Watergate scandal all those years ago. I think like the, the Watergate scandal just broke and, I, and the story goes that like the top seven guys that were like involved in it got together and they're like, listen, here's our story. No one break. Everyone just stick to the story and we'll all be fine. It within like 12 hours, they all broke. Because once you face persecution for a lie, you're going to break. And the fact that Jesus went through um, a Roman flogging and a Roman crucifixion and never once does he say, you got me, please stop. I'm not God's son. I'm not. I'm not. I was lying. He never once does that. In fact, you see the opposite of that, don't you? When you read the Bible, what does Jesus do on the way to Calvary? He's carrying the cross. He's on his way to being crucified. And what's he say? He says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Even through the crucifixion process, he's still clinging to this idea of being God. He's on the cross and he looks to the thief next to him, and he says, today you will be with me in paradise. And then right before he dies, what does he say? He says, Father, into your hands I, I commit my spirit. Even up to his moment of death, he is still clinging to this idea that he's God. That is, the, that is one humongous piece of evidence of why you can know that Jesus was not a liar. It's because a sane person, a level-headed person, does not die for a lie. But a crazy person might. So how do we know Jesus wasn't crazy? How do we know that Jesus wasn't mentally unstable? He believed he was God even though he wasn't. I can give you two big reasons why I believe how you can know that Jesus was not a crazy person. One is that Jesus had a humongous following, Right? Now, you, you might immediately say, well, Spencer, there's plenty of people who are not so level-headed that have large followings. 100%, I'll give you that, granted, okay? Absolutely. But I still think it's worth pointing out because back then, if you followed somebody, you had to follow them with your feet, not with a button on Twitter. You actually had to follow them. So all these people, like at one point when Jesus feeds the 5,000, that's 5,000 men, so you probably had a whole bunch of women and children too. So you, at one point, Jesus maybe had 20,000 or more people literally with their feet following him around. And the reason why I still think that's important for you to remember is because in order to follow someone back then, you had to see the way they spoke. You had to see the way they talked to people, how they how they, how they um how they treated people, that, you know, these people who followed Jesus around, they saw the veins popping out of his neck as he preached. They, they saw his eyebrows go up and down as he spoke. They saw spit fly out of his mouth. They saw his gestures. They, they, they knew him. They saw him. And yet, at one point, tens of thousands of people chose to follow him. I'm not going to act like that is an amazing piece of evidence, but I still think it's worth pointing out. But the second piece of evidence that I, that I hope can show us that Jesus was not crazy is the fact that there's just simply no signs for it. There's no evidence of Jesus being mentally unstable. Modern day psychologists have studied the life of Christ and find no sign of lunacy. In fact, in fact, you actually see the opposite when you read the Bible. When Jesus walks up to Lazarus' tomb and he sees the tomb and, you know, his, his, his dead best friend 
is inside, what does, what does Jesus do? He cries. That's a normal human reaction. When Jesus goes to the temple at one point, uh, at a couple times actually, he goes into the temple and he sees that they've turned his father's house into a marketplace. They're disrespecting his dad. What's, what's Jesus' emotional reaction to that? He gets mad. That's a normal human reaction. If you have a healthy relationship with your, one of your parental figures, put yourself in that situation. Getting angry is a normal human reaction. Um, Jesus sees a large crowd of people, and he sees that they're like sheep without a shepherd. And the Bible says that he had compassion on them. That is a normal human reaction. There's never any time of Jesus just in the corner of a room talking to himself. Hey, what's up? You doing all right today? You don't see that. You never, you never see him like looking over his shoulder or saying, guys, we got to get out of here before the monsters show up. Like you never see any, there's never any sign of mental instability with Jesus. In fact, you see the opposite. In fact, you see the opposite. To say that Jesus is crazy is just plucking something out of the air. So, having said all that, Jesus was either a liar, lunatic, or Lord. Hope I've shown you that, that, is, that those are the only three options you got. And B, he was not a liar or a lunatic. I hope I've shown you why you can be very confident in knowing that Jesus was not lying and that Jesus was not crazy. And if Jesus was not lying, and if Jesus was not crazy, then what is the only logical, factual, historical conclusion that you can come to? That Jesus is Lord. And so now we get to the so what part. All right, Jesus is Lord. Now what? So what? And here is the implications of this argument that are so profound. Number one, if Jesus is Lord, that means Christianity is true. If Jesus Christ is Lord, that means Christianity is the one tr is, is true. It means Christianity is true. Number two, it means that all other religions are false. I know that is not a very popular thing to say in this world. But factually speaking, logically speaking, that's where we can come to. Because Jesus, if Jesus is Lord, what did Jesus say when he was walking this earth? He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the Father except through me. So any other belief system that tries to convince you that they can get you to God in some other way, we can logically conclude right now that all other religions are objectively false. And if Jesus is Lord, that means God is real, which means atheism is false. Atheism is objectively false. And I'll get to the final one here in just a second, but I want to, I want to go back to Keith. When we left Keith, he was, he was upside down, um, disoriented, stuck, Everything was on fire. It's just going to get worse. And I asked, I wondered if, if some of you could relate to him, spiritually speaking. You start asking yourself, if, is God even out there? 
Maybe you go through, maybe someone asks you a question you never thought of before, or maybe you go through a time of your life that makes you question whether God is real, and you start asking those questions. Is God even there? Is anyone even listening when I pray? Maybe you can relate to Keith in that way. Well, in that story, Keith is upside down in his circumstances that he's in, and he knows it's, he knows it's about to be over, and he remembers he has something in his pocket. And he reaches in, and he pulls out his pocket knife. He flicks out the knife, cuts the seatbelt, and crawls out of his truck. And then just shortly thereafter, the truck explodes. The, 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 uh, the doctors called him the, uh, mir the miracle man. <sighs> Apologetics cannot save you from your sins. Apologetics cannot take away your sorrow or take away your shame. Apologetics cannot save you. But apologetics is that tool that we pull out of our pocket when we find ourselves upside down, everything's on fire, and things are about to get worse. Apologetics is that tool we can pull out to cut the seatbelt and crawl to safety. And maybe you're not the one who needs to hear everything. Maybe you're sitting there listening to all I'm saying. You're like, Spencer, I do not need to hear this. My relationship with God is golden, and it always will be, and maybe it will always will be. And maybe you're right. Maybe you are not the person who needs to hear what I'm saying this morning. But maybe your nephew does. Maybe your dad does. Maybe you have that friend or a relative, and you're like, that's why... Apologetics is a tool that I'm hoping to be handing to you right now. And you take it and either use it for yourself and or use it for those in your life that you know would benefit from hearing this. Apologetics will not save your family. Apologetics will not forgive them of their sins. It will not. But apologetics is that tool that will point you to the one who can. And that brings us to the final implication of this argument. And that you can see it on the screen. Salvation is offered to you right now through this Jesus. Salvation is offered to you right now through this Jesus. Right now, to every single person in this room and listening online, anybody hearing my voice, there is a nail-scarred hand being held out to you, offering to, to, for you to take his hand to take away your shame, to take away your sorrow, to take away your sins. And you can know that that Jesus is the one true God through facts and logic, not just through emotional fluff and stuff. So right now there is a nail scarred hand <laughs> being held out to you. And maybe, maybe you're like, I've taken that hand. I'm, I, I, I've, I'm walking with Jesus. Um, but maybe in your walk with Christ, you've wandered away. That nail-scarred hand is still being held out. Come back. Come home. Salvation is offered to you right now, this morning, through this Jesus. And if you've never made that decision, if you maybe you're one of the people who have thought, um, 
believing in God is, there's no evidence for it. I hope, I hope, I hope I've shown you that yes, there is evidence for believing in God. It is not just a mindless thing. There is concrete, solid, factual evidence for believing in God. And if you've never made that decision, maybe because of that or for whatever other reason, of all days, make that decision today. If you come up during this closing song and, and you say, I want to give my life to Christ. I want, I, I see it. I see that he's real. I know that he's real. And I want to give my life to Christ. And you want to get baptized? We will baptize you today. There is all sorts of stuff back. If you're like, well, I didn't bring a change of clothes. We got that. Well, I didn't have, you know, something to do with my hair. We got that back there as well. Do not come up with some excuse. If you are ready to make that decision, make that decision today. Or if you just need to come up here and pray then come up here and pray or pray where you are, whatever. But whatever decision, if you want to join the church, come up here and do that as well. Whatever decision you have to make today, make it today. Make it today while you still have the time. I'm going to close this in prayer and then we're going to sing this uh, invitational song. So please pray with me.